Happy Easter. Come on, turn to two people. Tell them they're happy to see them. You're glad that they're here. Come on, go ahead. Turn to two people. Hi, happy Easter. You look nice today. I'm glad you wore turquoise. Go ahead and tell them something nice. Here you go. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, welcome. Well, if you're new to City Church, welcome. My name's Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. I am excited to have you with us on Easter Sunday. Are you guys excited to be at church today? Good, good, good. Man, I could have just hung out and singing those songs. I was just like, whew. I was having a good time. It's always a good time. I mean, I was just having a, a good time. Let's pray, and we're going to jump right into the talk today. God, thank you for an opportunity to study the Bible today. Thank you for an opportunity to gather. And I know that friends, family, people from all over the country have, are here today. And um, God, this unique moment in time, this moment in history, this unique gathering, we're just grateful that we get to be here, that we get to be a part of it, and that uh, really above all else, that we get to celebrate Jesus, I pray that that reality would become uh, actually real to each of us in a unique way today in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I took a, my first trip really far from home. I was in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a place that's very geographically far from where you grew up. But for me, um, going somewhere really far, it was strange. I had this awkward expectation that as I got off the plane, something would be so seismically different about the culture or about the world on the other side of the planet, you know. And so I don't even know what I was looking for. Maybe I was looking for, you know, purple trees or maybe I was looking for 80 feet tall people, but I was looking for something unique, something special. And I remember getting off the plane in Manila in the Philippines, 19 years old, just kind of looking around and being like, you know, this doesn't look that different than home. And I remember a couple days into the trip getting to know uh, a young man about my age and uh, hanging out with him and talking with him. And as he explained his heart and as he shared his story, and as I got to know him better and better and better, this strange feeling started to creep over me. Maybe you felt the feeling before. It was this feeling that I heard his story. And I, at the same time, heard my story. There was this, yeah, you know what the feeling is. That's right. There's this unique feeling where I felt like, man, I, I know this guy. It's stranger from the other part of the world. You barely speak my language. I definitely don't speak yours, but there's this connection. There's this unity amongst humanity. I felt it again in Eastern Germany, in Neustadt, a little tiny town, former communist Eastern Germany. I sat with this kid, David, and had schnitzel, and it was awesome. I mean, it was some, it was some smoking good schnitzel, but as I was eating this food and talking to this guy, I started talking to him about Jesus, and I found out that he had never even heard the name Jesus here in, I mean, right in Europe, never heard the name of Jesus. And as I started to talk to him about this person, Jesus, who I knew and who had changed my life. And as I communicated back and forth with him about it, and he shared his story. Once again, I got this feeling like, man, you're not that different than me. I felt that same feeling on the streets of Amsterdam. I felt that feeling at a youth hostel in London. I felt that feeling in a high school in Rwanda, Africa. I felt that feeling in a coffee shop in Indiana. All these different experiences in my life where I noticed that there is this unique, interesting bond between us here, human beings. 99.9% the same. That's what every single human being on planet Earth is. 99.9% the same. All of our differences are found in 0.1%. I think elephants were like 97% the same. So I don't know if that is good or bad, but either way, we're 99% the same. 
And uh, there's this little unique difference in each of us, and that's beautiful. But at the same time, there's so much to celebrate that is similar. Why would I start Easter Sunday by talking about that? Well, today we're looking at a character in the Bible that is uh, often not uh, taught about or looked at closely. The character of Thomas, right? And maybe you've been around church, you know Thomas, you've probably heard Doubting Thomas, maybe you've heard Peeping Thomas, that's a different guy, but... um, (laughs) But, you know, you've heard some different things about Thomas, but I want to just today give you an invitation into his life, okay? And today, my expectation for you or my challenge to you would be to take the next few minutes as I talk about Thomas and open up your heart to the possibility that in this story, you will see yourself. Now, Thomas is a little bit different than you, and he's a little bit different than me. I've never met him personally. He was a Jew in Roman-occupied Uh, Israel 2000 years ago, right? He was uh, probably poor. We don't know a whole lot about his earlier days. We don't know if he was married. We don't know what kind of business he ran, but we do know that he got involved with this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and he became convinced that Jesus was the savior of the world. And so he left everything. He left family. He left his occupation to follow Jesus. And so hundreds of people were doing that at the time, all expecting a Messiah to free them from Roman oppression. And so this guy, Thomas, is part of that clan. And for whatever reason, Jesus chooses him as one of his 12 closest disciples or allies, right? And so Thomas gets into the in group. And so he finds himself very close to Jesus. In John chapter 11, we see Thomas making this declaration that he's ready to die for Jesus, okay? So he's pretty hardcore. He's pretty passionate about his commitment to Jesus. And uh, later we see Thomas struggling with Jesus' teachings, not knowing exactly what Jesus is saying. Have you ever read the Bible and felt like that? Not knowing exactly what this thing is talking about. And so that's what Thomas struggles with at first. And then the day comes when Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' closest followers, betrays him on a, fr- a Thursday night and uh, of Passover in the Jewish holiday. And 300 soldiers show up in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And Thomas runs and hides. And this individual that he was so committed to, Jesus, in the moment of testing, he bails. He runs away and he hides. The next 48 hours are probably the most chaotic hours of Thomas's life, where his entire world gets turned upside down. He sees his savior that he thought was going to save the world. He was on the you know, victory train with Jesus. He sees this man get beaten, abused, mocked, spit at, hung on a cross and put in a tomb. And now it's Saturday and nothing's changed. And here we are, Easter Sunday, the very first Easter Sunday. Thomas is depressed. He's hiding with the other disciples uh, with the doors locked because at that point, every follower of Jesus was now a criminal and they were searching to arrest anyone that loved and followed Jesus. And so the disciples are hiding in this place with the doors locked. And in the midst of that, I don't know what Thomas was thinking, but he decided, you know what, guys, I just got to get some air. And so he leaves and he goes and watches a zombie movie and grabs some you know, uh, McDonald's and hangs out for a while. And when he comes back, it's all in the Bible. You can check yourself. And, uh, when he comes back, what happens is the disciples are all in awe and they say, Thomas, you're not going to believe this, but while you were gone, Jesus came. Really? Really? While I was gone, Jesus came. Let's pick up the story right there in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you can read. If not, it'll be in gigantic print on the screen. So uh, just about everyone, I think, can read it up there. Here we go. Thomas, uh, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, also called the twins, so he had a little, little nickname there, was not with them when Jesus came. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe that's where your identification with Thomas begins today, that uh, you feel like you're that guy. 
that when your mom or your sister or your husband or your aunt or your cousin or your best friend is all high on Jesus and religion and faith and spirituality, you feel like, you know, I think I might have left the room when that happened. You know, like, what happened here? Why is it that every time someone has these experiences, I'm left, you know, out of the picture? Maybe that's where you begin feeling like Thomas. And so that's obviously the way Thomas was feeling in John chapter 20, verse 24. And now in verse 25, we see what the disciples have to say to him and what he has to say to them. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, check this out. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. Look at those next words. I will never believe. Never believe? Tom, I mean, come on. You've seen Jesus cure diseases. I mean, if you go back and read the things that Thomas was an eyewitness of, you've seen Jesus cast out demons. You've seen Jesus raise a dead guy from the grave after four days dead. You see Jesus walk on water. You see all types of crazy things. And now you're so whatever, bitter, frustrated, distracted, unbelieving, whatever his condition was, you're so much of that. That you cannot believe unless you stick your finger in the actual wounds of Jesus. What would make a person so negative? I've been thinking about this the last few days. And this one question keeps playing again and again in my mind. How could a man who has seen so much believe so little? And I want to suggest to you today that um, here on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago, there were a few other voices speaking to Thomas. And um, it's my conviction that they all took the waters off the stage. Dang, guys. Somebody hook me up with the water. That'd be awesome. Thanks. It's my conviction that those same voices, I was planning on stealing the guitar players, and, and he took it with him. Smart. It's my conviction that the same voices that are distracting me right now have spoken to you. That those same voices that distracted Thomas and brought him to a place of unbelief have also brought you to a place of unbelief. There was an inner voice, an inner voice that was distracting Thomas and pulling him away from faith. I'd call it the voice of rationality. You ever heard that voice before? The voice of rationality. Justin Coons, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, thanks. They had to pick the most handsome man to come out and give me a water, huh? The voice of rationality. What's the voice of rationality? Well, the voice of rationality is the voice that tells you that if you can't understand it, if you can't explain it, if you can't quantify it, then you certainly can't believe it, right? The voice of rationality gives you the ability to say, listen, if I don't grasp this, then there's no way that I can actually trust this. And now looking at Thomas's perspective, he's thinking to himself, really, fellas, really? Jesus rose from the dead. I saw him get beaten and whipped. I saw the blood gushing out of his body. I can't possibly believe that this individual is now alive. And the voice of rationality, check this out, has the ability to somehow minimize the supernatural things that you've experienced and submit them to your own reason. Interesting. That I've found far too often, maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I just, I can't believe in the whole resurrection of the dead, Jesus thing. I just, I, 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 you know, it's just a few steps. I have a rational mind. I can't believe in that. But you believe in microwaves. No one has any idea how those things work. (laughs) Right? You believe in all kinds of things that you don't understand. And yet when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to faith, the voice of rationality builds a wall around you and I. And we say, well, that's just impossible. 
Here's what I found. I found that at the core, when you get down to it, stay with me today, that far too often the voice of rationality is just a cover for something else. It's a cover for you and I wanting to stay in control. See, if I can submit everything to my reason, then I have this inner sense of control about me. And that's what's going on inside of many of us today. I don't trust or have these radical degrees of faith, not because it's not rational, but because it's beyond my rationality. And what you've done, whether you realize it or not, is you have deified your own rationality, demanding that every other intellectual force submits to your understanding, which means that now your mind is God. That's scary. Because you're not that smart. And neither am I. See, I could show you all types of empirical information about Jesus. I could tell you how there were 300 biblical prophecies before Jesus ever rose from the dead. 300. And he fulfilled every single one of them. Every little nuance of his life prophesied hundreds of years before he ever came. The mathematicians have struggled with They said it's impossible for this to be coincidental. This one historical figure perfectly fulfills every nuanced prophecy. I could tell you about the 20,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. How it's the most reliable historical document on the planet. I could tell you about the eyewitness testimony. I can tell you about the transformation of the gospel through generations, through things like orphanages, hospitals, schools, human rights, just laws. I can tell you about all those things. And somehow you and I have the ability to build a wall of rationality around us and say, sandbar, there's a sandbar. He didn't walk on water. Sandbar. I'm going with sandbar. That's what I think. Always finding a reason. Thomas did. And if anybody would struggle to find a reason to rationalize off the things he's seen. Thomas seemed to do it with expertise, right? He's able to just say, I'll never believe unless I have quantifiable evidence. It wasn't the only voice talking to Thomas, though. It's not the only voice talking to you. There's another voice that speaks loud, and I believe it was speaking to Thomas that day. I call it the, the voice of self-preservation. The voice of self-preservation guards us from anything that would damage our pursuit of pleasure. Right? The voice of self-preservation. Now, if anybody would struggle with the voice of self-preservation, I think it would be Thomas. Because here's this guy who, from a distance, watches his leader, his rabbi, his teacher get slaughtered. So that the body is literally hanging off the bones. He watches this man get beaten. He watches this man get nailed to a tree as thousands of onlookers who just days before yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now yell, crucify, crucify. He watches his king, who he thought was untouchable hanging on a cross, dying. And I can imagine that in that moment, as he's standing back in the crowd so no one notices that he was a follower of Jesus, as he's standing there, I could imagine that Thomas was thinking to himself, I don't want that. I don't want that. It's going to cost me too much. It's going to hurt me too much. And some of us in this room, you've looked at religion and you've thought, wait a minute, wait, hold on. I got to re, it's going to, I can't drink that much. I can't have sex that much. I just said that in church. We say a lot more than that, by the way, here at City Church. I can't do drugs like... I, I, can't, I can't decide what I, I, I... I can't take limitations like that. I've got to preserve my own pleasure. I've got to have my own fight. I've got to do my own journey. I know what's best for me. And I'm going to... This whole religion thing seems limiting. This whole religion thing seems like it's going to rob me of the greatest pleasures in life. I'm not doing that. I'm protecting myself. In fact, my rational mind gives me good reason to do it. Right? Many of us do this. Friend, hear me today. The thing you and I don't realize far too often is that those pleasures run out. That those great passions become addictions. 
And that those great ambitions are hollow outside of God. You were created for God. You were created by God. You were uniquely designed by a creator and nothing satisfies but him alone. And you can find every pleasure and take it to the umpteenth degree and you'll find yourself alone and hollow because you were designed for him. Pleasure with God has no boundaries. And pleasures without him just become bondage. But I would propose to you that there was a third voice that was speaking to Thomas that I think was probably the loudest. And I think today, for many of us, this is the voice that's the loudest right now. I'd call it the voice of disappointment. See, Thomas was a young man with a lot of dreams ahead of him, right? He had big ambitions, big passions. He knew what was best for him. And uh, he followed Jesus. He gave his all. And now he finds himself alone, a criminal, hunted, rejected. And somewhere inside of him, I would guess that the voice of disappointment was saying something that maybe you've heard before in your own heart. God failed me. God failed me. And many of us here today, we keep our distance from Jesus because you think that God failed you. You grew up in a home where mom told you all about Jesus on Sunday and then didn't look anything like Jesus on Monday. You got involved in a church where all the things seemed right, except as you got to know people, you found out that the ministers were actually having affairs and that the people were actually just stealing your money and that the leaders were all hypocrites. And you have this big list of disappointments and failures. You went out on a great marriage based on Jesus and it collapsed and fell apart and now you're alone. You gave a lot for the purposes of Jesus only to find that your money was being squandered. You've got good reasons to be disappointed by God. He's let you down. You prayed for that person and they died. You believed God for a miracle and it didn't happen. The voice of disappointment is speaking to you consistently. And you say, you know what, Jesus? I got some scars. I've been around the block. Mom failed me and dad failed me. And these other people failed me. And I'm not that ready to go trusting someone I can't see. The voice of disappointment tells me I need to keep my boundaries, keep myself in control. I'll hug to my rational thinking and my self-preservation. And I'll keep myself just fine. The voice of disappointment. Well, I got news for you today. Story ain't over. A little more to the story. We're going to read it together. Verse 28. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You know, the first thing I noticed about that verse, eight days later. Really? Couldn't have been later that night, right? Monday the next day, why did God leave Thomas hanging for eight days? Why did he leave you hanging for five years? Why did he leave you hanging for 20? Sometimes the eight days is a lifetime. Why does God not act when we want him to? I've got a really theologically sound answer for you. Because he gets to be God. And we don't. And that's a struggle for a lot of us. He gets to be God. Why did Jesus wait eight days to visit Thomas? I have no idea. But that's what he did. And that's what he's going to do in your life. And there are going to be some things where you're going to say, God, why? God, why? And the only answer you may get in this life is, I don't know. But he showed up. Look at that next phrase. This is the most important phrase in the entire passage. And this phrase is for somebody in the room today. Check this out. Although 
the doors were locked. Jesus came. Did you just feel that when I said that? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came. See, for some of us in this room, your doors are locked. And you say, I've made up my mind. I've built my walls. I'm preserving myself. I'm holding on to my pleasures. I've got everything sewn up tight. I'm just here because some family member forced me. I'm just here because it's Easter and I feel really bad if I don't. I'm just here because whatever reason brought me in this room. But you need to know, Justin, I've got it all ironclad, locked up. I'm not getting into religion stuff. Although the doors, doors were locked, Jesus still came. He came. Now, do you realize what that means? That means that Jesus will walk right through your closed doors. He'll walk right through your closed doors. Some of us, your doors are closed right now. And guess what? He's walking right through them right now. And you're starting to feel inwardly something you're not supposed to feel. You're starting to feel this conviction. You're starting to feel this pull. You're starting to feel this draw. And you're going, no, 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 no. Rationality, build up the walls. Here we go. Got to fix this. Can't do this. I don't want to get emotional. You're starting to feel something you're not supposed to feel. And Jesus is walking right in the room. And now you've got to deal with the fact that although the doors were locked, he's here. He's here. Now Jesus speaks directly to Thomas, just as he speaks directly to us. Look what he says. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Close your eyes for a second. I promise, even in New Haven, no one's going to steal your wallet today. Close your eyes for one second. Close your eyes for one second. I just want you to imagine this moment with me, okay? Remember I said in the beginning of this talk that, um, that your story's woven in here. I want you to imagine this moment with me right now. This guy who gave everything to follow this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now he seems like a distant memory. He's failed him. He's disappointed. He's trying to preserve himself. He's trying to think rationally here. He's trying to pick up the pieces of his broken life because things haven't worked out the way he thought they were going to. And now Jesus walks in when the doors are locked and he looks right at Thomas. What's Thomas feeling in this moment? What would you be feeling in this moment? Those eyes of this Nazarene piercing through his skull. He's looking at him. I can imagine in that moment, every single doubt and fear looked ridiculous. You can open your eyes. Let's look at the words that Thomas responds to Jesus in verse 28. Check it out. Thomas answered him, it's one of my favorite verses, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You know, I've read that story a lot and I discovered something this time around that I'd never seen. Did you ever notice that Thomas never put his finger in Jesus's wounds? Did you ever notice that he never put his hand in Jesus' side? Did you ever notice that for some reason, after he had spoken such a bold declaration just eight days earlier, now all of his rational needs, all of his questions, all of his disappointments, all of his frustrations were swallowed up in the reality that Jesus is standing right in front of me and there's not a whole lot else to say except my Lord and my God. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered this about my own life and about the lives of many friends that I've seen. You might have all the reasons today that you don't want to follow Jesus. You might have all the reasons today why Easter's enough religion for you. You might have all the reasons why tradition and religion has hurt you and disappointed you and frustrated you and abandoned you and left you high and dry. You might have a thousand reasons, but here's what I've discovered, that one word from God has the power to silence a thousand voices. 
That one word from God today has the power to silence a thousand voices going on inside of you. That every excuse, that every disagreement, that everything that would hinder you from trusting Christ right now, just one word from him. It has the power to silence a thousand voices and draw you to Jesus. What kind of God makes a special trip for a man like Thomas? If I was God, I think Thomas would be the one that I skip. I mean, really, Thomas, you don't believe You've seen it all. You have no good excuse to not believe that Jesus could do this. What kind of God in the midst of a failure like Thomas still makes a special trip? Did you notice he doesn't really talk to anybody else? He shows up for Thomas and then he leaves. Look at me today. All across the room. What kind of God does that? A God who pursues you. A God who pursues you. A God who actually pursues people. You know, people struggle to quantify love. What is love? Is it pleasure? What is love? And there's one really good explanation in the Bible. It's the only one that I've seen that's held up over time. God is love. A God who loves you so personally that he would orchestrate events for you to be here right now? A God who loves you so completely that although you've used some stupid excuses like Thomas has, he's still walking in the room today? A God who gazes at you right now and speaks to you in a way that human beings cannot speak. Do you see his love today? See, on the outside, you just see a peasant, Jewish peasant, hanging on a Roman cross. That's it. But if you look a little closer, you can see God. You can see God in the body of a man. And you can see him stretching out his arms and being nailed to a cross voluntarily because he wants you. See, the good news of Jesus is not sin less, do better. If you do enough good things, you'll go to heaven. That's not the good news of Jesus. Good luck with that. It's not good news. It just makes us all feel like failures. The good news of Jesus is that in the justice of God, God knew that you could not get to Christ, that you could not be holy. And so he decided to become a man substitute his life for yours and make an exchange so that every sin that you've ever committed past, present, and future would be completely paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ so that every bit of his perfect righteousness could be freely given to you so that you could be an unbreakable relationship to the one who created you forever, not at all based upon how worthy you are, but based upon the love of God's sacrifice. This is scandalous. This is often skipped in religious services. This is Jesus. The other day I was reading in the prophet Isaiah, 
And, uh, and I read this verse, and it just blew me away, of Jesus prophesying 600 years before. It says that he, the Messiah, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The justice of God satisfied for the sin of the world by one perfect man hanging on a cross so that my imperfections could be forgiven, absolved, paid for, so that I can be in unbreakable relationship with God. came across this hymn the other day. I just want to read the words to you. Fair are the meadows, fair are still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Fair is the sunshine, fair is still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus is brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. All fairest beauty, heavenly and earthly, wondrously Jesus is found in thee. None can be nearer, fairer, or dearer than thou, my Savior, art to me. Just stand your feet with me on Easter Sunday today. We're going to take a couple minutes this morning to sing. We're going to sing about Jesus. And as we do, I believe today... That Jesus isn't just speaking to Thomas, but he's speaking to you. And he has something very specific to tell you. And I believe it's the same thing he said to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Today you have an invitation to hear the voice of God. And you say, well, if I saw something particular, if an angel flew into the room, I'd believe. You know something crazy? No, you wouldn't. You'd find a good reason to think that we did some pyrotechnic design. You'd say it was a sandbar. You'd come up with something. Because faith takes risk. Today I want to dare you to risk. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this moment welcome you, Jesus, to speak to us um, in a way like, uh, like only you can, God, on the inside. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.